Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast. I am your host, Zach Bitter, and today I have an interview episode ready for you. So today's guest is my friend, Aaron Alexander. Aaron Alexander is a movement specialist. If you have been staying on top of your HPO podcast listening, you will remember that Aaron actually came on the show back in, I believe, December for episode 269. So if you like what you're hearing in this one and want more Aaron, you can find that hour of discussion at episode 269 of this podcast. For that episode, we dove pretty deep into breathing and we only had an hour to record because we did that one actually live from the running event and we realized we could have talked for multiple hours if we had the time so we decided to wait for me and my wife nicole to get into austin where aaron is residing and sit down again and do another in-person one Uh, so yeah this one was done in person which i have done a few of since being in austin and really do prefer it obviously that's not possible with all the guests that i want to talk to but when i do have the opportunity to sit down with someone here in town get them in person, it does feel like it's a little bit more of an engaging conversation. So if if you like those ones better, let me know. I would love to make an effort to target more guests that I can do that with if that's something that a lot of the listeners are more interested in seeing versus the more standard Zoom recording interview options. Uh, some things about Aaron before we jump in, because uh, we did just jump right in. Aaron is a very highly sought after movement specialist. He's helped folks, including actors toby mcguire that's right spider-man and gerard butler that's right 300 some impressive people and his move or movement i should say is helping them kind of regain alignment after they've kind of put the put your body through some punishment we'll say or whatever it is you enjoy doing physically you know a lot of times when we specialize or target specific sports specific activities they tend to have certain areas of our body being moved in ways that are maybe not as uniform as they would be if we had a very well-rounded kind of more holistic approach to moving our body and that's just part of finding things that are interesting and doing things you want to do versus just kind of grinding out everything day after day so aaron specializes in helping you kind of find that balance find that alignment when you find yourself in that position which I would certainly, as an ultra marathon runner, put myself in that camp. I definitely have some areas of, of my own uh, my own body that are tighter or less mobile from the years and years of kind of running, especially on kind of more flat controlled surfaces. So Aaron has always been a go-to resource for me when it comes to trying to figure out some ways to get some tight areas or some tra- problematic areas loosened up and ready to kind of get back out there and start running again. So uh, let me know what you think about Aaron's content and everything around his topic on alignment with this episode. Also, for those of you who want to check out some of the interviews that have been recorded but have not been released publicly yet, you can do that by joining the Human Performance Outliers podcast Patreon page. Right now, I'm sitting on interviews with uh, Dr. Ethan Weiss, who is a cardiologist, low-carbohydrate, He takes a little bit of a different spin than some of the other guests we've had on here before. He does like a more of a Mediterranean-based way of going about it. And we dove into a lot of topics about just like the variety of different ways you can formulate 
a low carbohydrate diet, what he looks at as a cardiologist when he's working with folks who are following low carbohydrate and what are some maybe warning signs that suggest you should alter the way you program your low carb ketogenic diet. I also have an interview with my friend Nick Curry, who was the number two ultra runner of the year last year and ended the year with a, an American record at the 24-hour distance. He ran 173 miles in 24 hours. We dive into a whole bunch of things like his relatively unique within the ultra running sphere uh, pacing strategy. Nick is a big fan of negative splitting these hyper long races, which imagine being out there for 22 hours and deciding to run faster the last two hours is something that I think escapes a lot of people in this sport, but Nick has got that dialed in. We also talk about just like how he structured his season last year, how he trains for a variety of different things. Nick's run like the Hard Rock 100, which couldn't be any more different than running 24 hours on a track, but he's done them all. So that was fun to talk to him. Another interesting thing about Nick, and one of the reasons I wanted to have him on for a little bit of a longer interview, is his dietary approach. He's done a variety of different nutrition-related interventions to training and racing these long races, including things as crazy as a fruitarian uh, diet. He kind of—I don't think he was 100% strict with it, but he leaned into it a little bit just to kind of see what it was like. And he's also done low carbohydrate, so uh, he shares a little bit of his insight on that, where he saw the wins, losses, and everything in between with the difference in variance and nutrition that he's applied to his career running ultra marathons. Uh, also coming up is uh, Graham, who, if you know who Graham is, you'll probably recognize him as the Barefoot Sprinter on Instagram. Graham has been doing some really cool things, I think, with movement, mobility, and just fitness in general. So he was in town. We sat down, did an interview, and he also walked me through some movements that he thinks I should specifically work on. So we identified some weaknesses in the way I was moving, mostly around the ankles and hips. So he shared with me some stuff that I could do, recorded some content, recorded a podcast. That one will be up on the Patreon page soon. And if you're curious about some actionable go-to moves that Graham shared with me, head over to my Instagram page. I'll be rolling some of that stuff out. I actually have one post up there right now where we looked at ankle flexion and some a couple quick things you can do pretty quick or pretty easily in just a couple of minutes each day to kind of loosen up those ankles, get a little more mobility, get a little more strength in them. But there'll be more coming than there too. So if you want to kind of see some of that stuff in a little bit more of a quick fashion, my Instagram page, which is at Zach Bitter is a good spot to go. And I'll be dropping some of that stuff over there along with the podcast when that one kind of comes up in the, in the list of uh, episodes to release. Uh, before we get going, if you want to support the show, but Patreon's not your thing, a, you can do single one-time donations at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO, which is also where you will find the show Patreon page, which does offer you ad-free audio and early release options. If you want to support the show non-monetarily, there are some great options there too. Sharing, liking, and subscribing on your favorite podcast listening platform is a great way to help the show grow. You can also, write a review on your favorite podcast listening platform, letting me know how you rank the shows you've checked out. Another way to help the show is by supporting the show sponsors. If one of the show sponsors has a product you're looking to check out, you can let them know that, that I sent you there through the show by going through the links provided. So you can find all the show sponsors on their landing page, which is just zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. 
This episode's sponsors include Optimal Carnivore. Optimal Carnivore makes organ meat supplements that have some of the most nutrient-dense foods on the planet in capsule form. Despite their benefits, sometimes it can be difficult to incorporate them into your diet. So Optimal Carnivore aims at making these nutrients easier to access with their products, which include grass-fed organ complex, bone marrow complex, and grass-fed beef liver. These products work great for busy people who are traveling or as they develop an appreciation for organ meats. Their grass-fed organ complex has nine different organs, including beef liver, brain, thymus, heart, kidney, spleen, pancreas, lung, and gallbladder. Bone marrow complex contains the same components as bone broth. The products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished and free of hormones, pesticides, antibiotics, and GMOs. They also plant one tree for every product sold. If interested, you can visit amazon.com forward slash optimal carnivore. That's amazon.com forward slash O-P-T-I-M-A-L-C-A-R-N-I-V-O-R-E. And use the code HUMANSAVE10, that's H-U-M-A-N-S-A-V-E-1-0 for 10% off your next order. As always, all HPO sponsors, links, and discounts can be found in the show notes and by visiting the show sponsor page at zachbetter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Also sponsoring this episode is Gooder Sunglasses. Gooder makes $25 active sunglasses for anyone. Gooder sunglasses are lightweight, comfortable, don't move when you move, and they're all just $25. So you can get a single pair or get a couple or a few so you can color coordinate what you're wearing, whether it's active or casual. They have a no slip, no bounce, all polarized and all fun approach to their products. All Gooder sunglasses are 100% UV protective and 100% polarized. Whether you're planning on running, cycling, hiking, or simply spending some time in the sun, Gooder will stay snug and comfy. Gooder is running free U.S. shipping on all orders over $50, a 30-day free return, one-year warranty, and 100% carbon neutral to go along with 1% for the planet. Go to Gooder.com, that's G-O-O-D-R.com forward slash HPO and get 15% off the already low price for your entire order when you use the promo code HPO at checkout. That's gooder.com forward slash HPO, HPO promo code for 15% off at the checkout. Links in the show note and at zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. All right, let's get into the show with Aaron Alexander. Cool. Awesome. Dope. But all right, should we get rolling? We are here. Sweet. We are, yeah, we are rolling. We've been rolling. It is happening. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you for coming back on. Thank you. It's, Thanks for, for doing this. I'm, I'm so grateful for the opportunity to get to connect from you and learn from you and be a part of contributing to your audience and yeah. your experience. And, you know, it's just, it's such a cool thing to get to coming to Austin, which you just moved to Austin. It's such a beautiful opportunity to get to connect, bring all the, the seemingly like congruent yet separate minds together into one place and kind of see what happens yeah it's a really cool opportunity yeah it's a great time to be in austin i think it's a fun spot to be a lot of interesting people and um i mean the feeling is mutual i have a little massage ball on the floor here because of your influence so (laughs) (laughs) i I love uh your take on just just general use of like mobility because i think like when i first well i mean Here's the way I looked at it when I was younger 
And as our mutual friend, Matt Vincent would say, when you're in your twenties, you can abuse the machine mm. and it just responds. Mm. Get into your thirties. Eh, the machine doesn't always quite want to respond the way it maybe did in your twenties. And you start thinking about these things a little more. So then mobility kind of became something where it was like, all right, here is something I have to do. I'm going to carve out like this section of the day to do it, whether it's like after run, before run during gym time. And then you brought to my perspective, just like, well, how can you just embed that into your day to life? So regardless of what you're doing that day, the mobility kind of finds itself into the like crevices that it fits. So if I'm sitting at my desk, uh, reviewing a coaching plan or something like that, why can't I be in a squatting position for, you know, two minutes at a time? Yeah. Why can't I be sitting on my shins versus on my butt in a chair for, you know, periods of time during the day and that sort of stuff. And I think that's like, oh, these are the little subtle ways to address some of that stuff without actually feeling like it's an extra task you have to do. And that's, and that, that's the, I think the, the stickiest way to maintain these habits is to make it be a part of, you know, something I, I say that feels almost cliche and cheesy, but, but, you know, it's making fitness who you are, as opposed to a thing that you do, you know, and acknowledging that everything that you do throughout the day, your body is clocking that mm -hmm. it's tracking that position. So if you're sitting in some position that would be disadvantageous for creating leverage from your hips, or, you know, you're, you're, you rarely take your joints out of like this kind of 90 degree <laughs> range of motion, then your joints start to orient around that position. They stiffen that position and the other ranges of motion from a neuromuscular perspective, they start to atrophy and, you know, you start to kind of wither away those aspects of yourself that you don't engage with mm -hmm. on a regular basis. And so if you look at cultures, for example, which I don't know if we talked about this previously, but like in Northern Tanzania, there's been research with the, with Hatsa yeah. tribes people mm -hmm. and the, what they, they found the researchers, I think we may have mentioned this, but just as a kind of a baseline for what we're talking about, the researchers from university of Southern California found that these Hatsa tribes people end up spending about on average 9.82 hours in resting in quotation positions each day which is very similar to industrialized populations. Mm -hmm. So the idea that like sitting is the new smoking, yeah. sitting is yeah. killing you. Sit, like, it's like, uh, it's like this, all this fire and brimstone, very puritanical, like, okay, mm -hmm. we've, we found the culprit, the perpetrator is sitting. Um, but it's not actually the sitting. That's the issue. It's the manner in which, or the resting position. That's the issue. It's the manner in which we're doing it. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at these places that have, minimal to no incidence of osteoarthritis in their hips and their knees and you know pelvic floor dysfunction isn't a thing and fall risk isn't a thing for elderly mm -hmm. they just have these natural positions like you're describing now it's just baked into their daily life mm -hmm. and if you can do that then it's not another task to do it's just who you are yeah it's just a part of the thing it's not something to think about mm -hmm. and so it's looking at the container that the body exists in as opposed to just looking at like these new homework assignments for you to do in a broken, inherently dysfunctional container. Yeah. I was thinking about that the other day. Cause like our, our dog Stella, she's, I mean, she just sits wherever she wants, basically whenever she wants, but she's always in a different position. It's never uniform. Mm -hmm. I mean, she's got like some particular ones, but they always kind of rotate. Yeah. And her body's just, naturally yeah. finding those positions that need new hydration and new fluid, new range of motion, new mobility. You can yeah. kind of feel that like, okay, I'm just going to, roll the hip over into this meter rotation just for a little bit. Like, oh, okay, cool. yeah. we're clear. 
Uh-huh. Yeah. Check, check, <laughs> check that one off the list. Check, <laughs> but it's a subconscious uh-huh. thing. Like yeah. that's a healthy body mm-hmm. to get to that point. Yeah. Sorry for interrupting. Well, no, I mean, I'm just because she's like 90 in dog years too. So I'm like, man, she can make it up down the stairs still. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's funny to, to think about that. But, you know, one other thing that kind of like highlighted that for me was before I kind of started trying to embed it into just my kind of routine, I would spend 10, 15 minutes before like say an afternoon session doing some mobility work, just so I felt like a little more smooth that first mile or so of a run. And then when I started embedding it into the routine, I'd notice I'd get down to do that before. And I'd be like, I'm already ready to go. You're already there. Yeah. I've yeah. been, I've been ready. I've been ready. I've been doing this all day long in bits and pieces throughout the day. And, and then every once in a while, you know, I'll get distracted or lazy or whatever, and uh, I won't. And then I'll, I'll, I'll notice, oh yeah, I, I wasn't doing that. So yeah. it's something I think, yeah, the better you can make it intuitive and just kind of part of what you do. And you don't even think twice about it, the closer you're getting to kind of having it optimized. Yeah. And there's no one position that's bad, a bad position. There's no like naughty mm-hmm. position. If your head is temporarily projected forward into forward head posture, or mm-hmm. your spine is in like a hyperkyphotic position or your shoulder roll forward or uh-huh. any of those positions that seem kind of like, Oh, like that's bad. Uh-huh. Uh, if you're loading the body from those, those ranges of motion, say you're doing a deadlift or something from that range of motion, you're not braced correctly, mm-hmm. then you increase the risk of injury. But the unloaded body can take on all sorts of strange positions. And there's nothing like wrong with it. Mm-hmm. The issue comes when those in, inherently dysfunctional positions to load weight through or add velocity to like starting to go real fast. Yeah they start to become repetitive positions and they start to become your habit. They start to become your groove. And now when you are in that scenario where you kind of tap into whatever your habits are, that's when the issue comes. Mm -hmm. But as long as you are baking in these full functional ranges of motion for really all the joints in your body throughout the day, just naturally, then you can sit on a plane for a three hour plane ride in a Mm -hmm. terrible position. Yeah. And it's not really a big deal. Mm-hmm. You kind of shake it off when you get off the plane. It's like, okay, cool. You know, you can go sit at, in a, in a um, you know, go sit in a desk for four hours. And it's like, you feel kind of like, oh, I don't want to do this, but it's not the end of the world. Right. You just need to have the anchor point of making sure that your joints are going through these basic ranges really on a daily basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's, it's just one of those things too, that it's not something you really have to recover from. For the most part. Right. So it, once you, I mean, I'm sure there's probably, if you get crazy with it early on and haven't done it ever before, I'm sure you'll wake up maybe a little awkward the next day, but it's not like where you'd see like an Olympic power lifter going in the gym and pulling a ton of weight off the ground. The next day they're a little sore from it. It's something you can kind of, I like it, liken it to uh, Ben Patrick's sled stuff. He's like, mm-hmm. I can squat once a week, maybe, but I can push and pull a sled six days a week. Yeah. And it's just kind of like that type of a mindset. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Have you, have you done anything with Ben? Yeah. So when he was in town, uh, for his Rogan interview, I got him to get, take me through a workout. And then we did, uh, like a 45 minute episode, uh, oh, about the stuff. So he had me do the sled push and pull tibial or yeah, tibial weighted tibialis raises, hip flexor raises, um, uh, slant board squat, goblet squats. What else did we do? Oh, the Nordics I think was the other one. Yeah. I think that was all of them. Yeah. How was yeah. your experience with it? I loved it. It was fun. Yeah. yeah. I'd been doing some of the stuff. Uh, I was definitely my weakest spot was the Nordics, mm-hmm. uh, which uh, probably makes some sense being that I run very long distances and 
not fast sprints. I would imagine Nordics are probably going to be something a sprinter would be much better at than a distance runner. But yeah, uh, it was cool to kind of see and hear the reasoning. Cause like the first part and then the workout itself was maybe 30 minutes. We had three, three people, I think at the time we're kind of just rotating through it. And then we sat down and just went through each one of those movements afterwards. So it's just as fun to hear him explain like, well, this is why you do this. This is why you can push and pull a sled six days a week, but you maybe want to be mindful of doing like hip flexor weighted hip flexor raises more than like once or twice a week and yeah. how to kind of view those different movements. And the, the beautiful thing with Ben, Ben's a, a friend and we've done YouTube stuff and podcast stuff and, mm-hmm. you know, we like uh, text each other random things about yeah. knees and whatnot. <laughs> and I really appreciate what he's uh, the, the symbol that he represents and the, mm-hmm. and like the, the movement sphere um, because it really is like, he's like a very simple guy, yeah you know? And it's like the, the, what he's doing, he's kind of taking these advanced techniques and rehab and prehab and physical therapy suggestions and all that stuff and kind of seeing it's like, okay, like, yes, but it, it seems like there's, there's also some simple, suggested solutions here that i'm not really seeing in this and it's just like doing the opposite what if i just do the opposite uh-huh you know and so a person spends their whole life working on their their squat pr yeah. their deadlift pr you know all of these these different motions that are like are, are quite consistent and then saying okay well, what if i just reverse that motion mm-hmm. and start to bring that similar attention to the legs or the muscles that lift the legs and you know, flex the hip and go through the, you know, the opposite ranges and taking that same lens, I think in everything, just in a person's life in general, you know, seeing like whatever you're doing, you know, think like, what would it be like to also just do the exact opposite of that and kind of fill in that space on the other side, uh-huh. you know, and that's the same, same concept with the, the hips driving um, straight back and keeping neutral spine and never allowing the the knees to drift beyond the toes. Yeah. You know, and the fear of that putting excessive stress on the knees, which goes against like the basic concepts of, of uh, the way that your ligaments and tendons and, and muscles strengthen themselves is, is through stress. Mm-hmm. You know, so to, re- to restrict the body from stress or a p- specific range of motion will end and then end up causing those ranges to atrophy in the body. Uh-huh. So it's such a beautiful idea to say, okay, like what if, what if I intentionally go through those ranges? And so just as almost like a metaphor, like is there other places in a person's movement practice or their training or their life in general that they, they can implement that same idea? You know, and I think that that's something that, that Ben's really, I think like bestowed upon the, the, the movement conversation yeah. with people of like, cool, like, yes, do all of that. And now I want you to specifically explore doing the complete opposite. It might not always be the solution, mm-hmm. but just put that on the table Yeah, because there's a good chance we have a bunch of shadow spaces in our body that it's just, we haven't, you know, we don't have like the, the cortical map developed in that area because we've learned from some old textbooks that it's like not appropriate to go in that range of motion. We were, you were talking about knees over toes yeah. before. Yeah. So we're back now after we're back. escaped dog return. Had, had an escape mission <laughs> and she figured her way. That's, that was the cutest thing. So she found some random neighbors yeah. and then guided the neighbors back, back. to your house. She's like, Hey, we're, it's been boring over here was, lately since, uh, since Nicole's been on a work trip, I'll bring some extra people over. Maybe. <laughs> that's another thing that 
you know, we're looking for really complex solutions, which again, that's something that I appreciate, appreciate about Ben and offering up like seemingly simple suggestions and solutions for a broader problem. A similar thing would be just integrating a dog mm -hmm. into your life. You know, so yeah, if a person is overweight, you know, they're not getting outside enough, maybe they have uh, allergy issues, you mm -hmm. know, especially being exposed to dogs as, as an infant, as a young person can be helpful with starting to integrate some of those bacteria and the various things they, that a dog would naturally bring into the house, mm -hmm. uh, pollens, you know, all the different things. So they can start to develop an, an, a natural immune response. Whereas if the body doesn't get exposed to those pollens and all the different stuff, then essentially it like it's atrophied in a sense mm -hmm. around um, being able to protect itself against different pathogenic bacteria and things of the sort. So by having a dog, it's, it's essentially like bringing nature into your house, mm -hmm. you know, and then you have to walk the dog. You probably are going to get up and down off of the ground yeah. with regularity. You're probably going to incorporate touch into your life, which could be argue, arguably considered almost, almost like a nutrient mm -hmm. in a way. Specifically, there was, there was research done from, um, I believe it was university of Miami, Miami with a, with a, a gal called Dr. Tiffany field. And she found that, um, babies that were, uh, premature, they, so they ended up going into, um, the incubation tubes or whatever you would, mm -hmm. you would, you would call them. Uh, what she found was that the babies that were in the incubators without any physical contact compared to the way they did the study was they would expose the children to, it was 15 minutes of, of touch, just like little like baby massage uh -huh. three times a day. They would end up growing. I think it was like 43% faster oh, wow. than <laughs> the children that were in this vacuum, this like void of any, any physical yeah. contact. And so that's another thing that it's like, Oh, interesting. There's a lot more to this fitness wellness conversation than just doing the perfect myofascial release technique yeah. you know, or the perfect band exercise. There's, there's getting adequate sunlight. There's having touch. There's the sounds in your environment, the way that it affects your nervous system. Uh -huh. You know, it's, 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 there's a lot of simple low hanging fruit solutions to a lot of the issues that we end up seeking really like complex solutions for. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Cause I think like when you look at I mean, this is like, I mean, you mentioned the, the Hadza and it was like, whenever I think of that sort of a, it's like that sort of a scenario, it's like, here's a, a glimpse into kind of like what we're, you know, designed or evolved into being able to do. Yeah. And I think that's such a valuable thing to have because it kind of simplifies the complex. Cause like we can, we can study variables and get specific science about, why something works a certain way, but in most things, there's almost too many variables to really account for. And there's always gonna be ones we don't know about. Because right. I mean, how would we know if they're even there if we don't know if they're there in the first place? So chances are there's some that we're not aware of, even in the most like well-researched things. And for those, you almost have to go back to the basics to figure out like, well, how does this actually we, we know this is good. We don't necessarily know why. So like how do you implement it kind of a mindset? Yeah. The, the, the body does really well with, and you probably know this with, have you done much like, like sprinting or like track and field, or it's mostly been endurance, mostly distance, but I mean, there's a fair bit of just like short interval work, even within like hundred mile training and stuff like that. So I'd be interested in your perspective on this. There's, there's um, been 
quite a bit of research around extrinsic cues versus intrinsic cues mm -hmm. to you know achieve some type of physical goal or result so essentially meaning if i'm hitting a golf ball for example do i focus my awareness extrinsically into the ball or the goal at hand or do i focus intrinsically and say okay like neutral spine brace the abdomen uh -huh. external rotation of this medial rotation of this supination of that <laughs> You know, so where, where is that, what's going to be the most efficient path to achieving your goal? And most consistently, what the research would suggest is that by focusing your awareness into the extrinsic focus of, okay, just get that ball from here to there, mm -hmm. uh, as opposed to getting kind of lost in all of the internal intrinsic yeah. variables, uh, you're going to be more effective at, at essentially like self-organizing around the extrinsic goal as opposed to trying to juggle, juggle all these intrinsic yeah. variables. So I wonder for you, if that made sense, I wonder for you if, if, if you've ever thought about like extrinsic cues to run better. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I, I, I get your golf analogy because I mean, I've golfed plenty of times in my life and it's like, whenever I think about like, Oh, I'm like a spot that I'm doing something wrong historically. If I start hyper focusing on it, it just guarantees I'm going to mess something else up. Yeah. Maybe I get that part right, but then something else goes wrong. Right. There's, but when I just bracing in other parts of the system, yeah, because your awareness goes into that one one specific uh -huh. spot. You almost have to be like, well, think of some cues to think about before you approach the ball. But once you approach the ball, it's just like get up there and do it. And mm -hmm. at that point, you've already kind of you you should have already kind of gone through any of the like corrective measures. But yeah, for with with running, I think. Uh, the interesting thing along like those lines is there is like this, this intuitive sense, I think, where you kind of know when you've been doing it long enough, when you kind of cross over certain intensities mm -hmm. and you feel it. So like, you know, like, well, I could look down at my watch and say, oh yeah, I'm, I'm right in this like VO2 max target, or I'm right at my lactate threshold or whatever. But in reality, I can just go out there and do it. And I know when my body crosses that point or hits that point, by the way, I feel mm -hmm. the way I breathe, the way that like my, the, you know, the pain threshold and things like that. These are all like things that kind of just happen automatically now. Yeah. Is that kind of how you're yeah. looking at it or? Yeah. Well, I'm just curious. Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I love getting to pick the brain of, of people that are at elite level and their in their sport. You know, there's, there's, um, there's a quote from, uh, uh, I believe people, this title will be an exercise physiologist called Franz Bosch. Uh -huh. And the quote was essentially there's, there's more variation in, um, in waltzing than there is in sprinting, I believe is how it goes. So like waltzing, you can kind of, because there's not a high load, there's not high velocity. Mm -hmm. You can kind of go through lots of different ranges of motion. Yeah. And it's like, okay, cool. You can kind of do anything. Uh -huh. You know, this is what I was saying before was like your body can, pretty much do almost any position it's not really a big deal yeah it's when you add velocity it's when you add load that suddenly the truth starts mm -hmm. to surface and so uh yeah i just am interested in understanding how some of those things i read about like research studies and such you know relate to the field yeah you know just there, there if there is ever like where is your focus typically when you are running is it and how much of it is intrinsic what's happening inside your body and how much is of it is extrinsic outside of the body yeah this is a really interesting question because i think this actually 
maybe highlights why I run some of the races I do. It's because uh, I mean, ultra marathoning is such, is such a wide spectrum of possibilities being that it's essentially 50 kilometers up until infinity or however far you decide to make that arbitrary number. Mm. And then there's all the different environments too. There's like, I've done a lot of stuff on a 400 meter track. And then there's these races where you never step on the same patch of dirt the entire time. Cause you start in one area and end in another. And, uh, the way I look at it is like when I'm doing something like a track ultra marathon, there's like, it's almost all intrinsic at that point, because there's right. no environmental stimulus that's worth paying attention to after you've gone for two minutes. <laughs> so where intrinsic heartbeats, temperature heart, thoughts. Yep. Everything from like, I mean, you, you look for these things to distract you. Cause when you think about it, like I'm out there, you know, around 12 hours, if it's a hundred miles and uh, I've got nothing but me and those sensations and everything's so controlled, I think that offers an extra glimpse into it because really the environment around you didn't change at all. So that didn't necessarily, I mean, you get some slight variance in temperature if you're running all day outside, but some of these are even indoor tracks. So like yeah. you eliminate that sometimes too. So for those, it's like, you're thinking about things like my left foot is striking slightly different than my right foot. Is that because I'm going around a turn? Is that because I'm going, you know, all these other things or like, uh, certain things like, oh, I feel like I may be leaning back a little bit now. What's going on here? Is my posterior chain not activating the way it's supposed to, or is my core getting weak? You, all sorts of weird little things that you can pay attention to mm. that, um, if I'm out on a, like a course where it's like a trail where it's point to point, then it's like, I'm not noticing the majority of those unless they're like pretty glaring, like, oh yeah, you're going way too fast up this hill and that's not gonna be sustainable. That one's a pretty obvious one for me just from the amount of running I've done over the years. But the, a lot of those little things like foot strike patterns, and there's certainly more varied on a trail anyway, but uh, a lot of those little things that I'm paying attention to on a track get, uh, get crowded out by like, Oh, that's, that's a cool like view of over the river, or that's uh there's a climb coming up here time to kind of get into this mode, or there's a long descent coming up and I'm looking down on this technical terrain. And I'm thinking about like, just navigating that, picking the spot. So it's almost like, uh, I feel like the depends on the environment is a, probably a big driver for that. Yeah. I think it's such an interesting, I think this is so interesting. I appreciate you sharing these experiences because mm -hmm. my mind goes in all these directions, of like complex systems theory yeah. and emergent <laughs> patterns. And the, the, the body does a very good job with self organizing around some specific goal, mm -hmm. kind of like a team. If you have a team, you first define, maybe not first, but at some point when you define as a team, as an organization, okay, this is the goal where we all want to arrive at. Uh -huh. From there, suddenly the team says, okay, we yeah. organize the rest of okay, that's where we're going. Uh -huh. Whereas if you don't have a definitive goal of some sort, that can be fine. That could be a goal in and of itself. Mm -hmm. Maybe the goal is like creativity or exploration, yeah. you know, whatever impromptu um, yeah yeah it's like improvisation is the yeah. goal it's the goal of no goal which uh -huh. is also great yeah um but the way that the body can self-organize around some specific extrinsic goal you know running from here to there it's such a beautiful thing to watch and then coming from like a like a physical preparedness perspective in order for the body to be able to effectively uh self-organize in that kind of almost like subconscious, like I'm just kind of witnessing my body run, like in that like runner's high mm -hmm. type state where you're almost like a witness yeah. to your body. Is that something that you experience? For sure. And I, I, 
I get it more when I'm running in a controlled environment. I sometimes suspect that's because I've done a lot more of that historically. So it's just an area where I feel like I can disconnect a lot easier Mm. where I'm sure the folks that do a lot more like mountain trail running, find themselves able to do that because they're just more in tune with the skill set of running like technical terrain and they can kind of disassociate from themselves a little bit easier than I can. Uh, but it's, it's one of the best skill sets I find when you're on like a short loop track or something that's a little more monotonous, because then it's like, you almost like you, you remove time from the equation to some degree Mm. where you have like this, this point where you are, you're almost like, it's almost like you're above yourself watching the whole thing happening. And for whatever reason, when that occurs, you know, like minutes, hours can pass by quite quickly. Whereas if you're hyper-focused on like, here I am in this boring environment doing this thing over and over again, you find yourself like getting fixated on, well, how far did I go? How long did that go? And then it's like every minute feels like an hour and it's like yeah. the reverse effect. So I find myself using my training runs to get better at kind of commanding that experience versus having it just to, like when early in my career, I would just look forward to like in a race, like this will happen at some point and I'll be lucky. I'll, if I get lucky, I'll have a really good race. It'll happen a lot. And then that'll improve my performance. Whereas as I've gotten into it more, now I look at those type of experiences as something I can try to drive a little more. Mm. And if I do my training properly, I'll have an easier time getting into that state in the race itself. So for like long runs are the easiest ones to practice it on because they're just more consistent with what I'll be doing on race day than like say a a speed workout or something like that. So I'll practice like trying to visualize where I would be in a race during this long run and just kind of do a dress rehearsal in my mind. I find when I do that, I just feel more comfortable in that environment on race day. And that allows me to kind of disassociate yeah. a little, a little more readily. The visualization thing is, and so the, as where I was going with the, the um, emergent patterns, which is a, a, a complex systems theory term, something you'll see like murmuration with, mm-hmm. with birds or birds are kind of go, it's like they're one organism. And yeah. All this, Whoa, do this. <laughs> it's just so freaking beautiful to uh-huh. watch. Um, fish do the same thing schools of fish where it's it's like this hive mind type emergence Uh where they all self-organize around this common goal of you know whatever eating or staying safe or whatever the thing is the body does that in a way Uh when you place it into that scenario where you are running and you're kind of just almost being the witness to seeing these emergent patterns of your all of your connective tissue and joints and nervous system all just integrating Mm -hmm. to get to that point there is a certain level of physical preparedness or readiness which essentially could come down to do my basic major and minor joints have full functional range of motion Mm -hmm. and neuromuscular connection Uh uh-huh and so that's like, if we can make it so that our, in our daily lives, like we were suggesting before, you were suggesting before, we're just naturally integrating those basic ranges through the way that we live our lives through maybe kneeling every now and again, this is what the Hatsa people would do. Uh-huh. They're going to kneel for a good chunk of the day. They're going to squat for a good chunk of the day. They're going to floor sit for a good chunk of the day. And then they do their activities as they're doing that. As they're doing that, they're also outside mm-hmm. for, I don't know, maybe most of the day, all the day. And so they're getting lots of sun, they're grounding. So there's mm-hmm. a bioelectric conversation there as well, which can be helpful with, or shown to be helpful with in reducing inflammation and just you know, like anxiety and such. Mm-hmm. You know, so that's those basic, there, there's a person, uh, there's a fellow called Philip Beach, who wrote a book called Muscles and Meridians. 
And I borrow a lot of his concepts for the floor sitting chapter in, in my book, The Align Method. Um, he calls those positions archetypal positions of repose. And so he describes them as almost like they're like tuning mechanisms for the body. So when you're going through that toe sit, that kneel, you know, lunge, squat, all of that different floor, 90-90 position, sukhasana, all the things, it's essentially like this, this innate tuning mechanism to get those joints back up to 100%. Mm-hmm. And the analogy that's used from, I'm like being highly quotatious right now, but, but there's another fellow called uh, Frederick Alexander. He founded the Alexander Technique. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm rereading a book from him right now. And, and he describes the, the body and like the, the tuning of the body to be like an instrument. And if you're teaching an instrument or you're teaching a person to play a new song on an instrument, guitar, and the instrument is out of tune, doesn't matter how good at the guitar you are, it's still going to kind of sound like shit. Yeah. <laughs> and so you it's like, I'm doing, I got the chords, my finger position is yeah. great, but like, it just sounds like dog shit. Yeah. Like what's going on here? <laughs> it's like the symphony of your connective tissue and the tensegrity, all those tensional networks throughout the body are, are out of tune. Uh-huh. And it's in large part because you've probably been sitting say at a desk for uh you know thousands of hours since you entered kindergarten yeah so now you have this inherent um i don't know like misplacement of of tension throughout the body and now you're trying to teach the body these new songs you know Mm -hmm. or movement expressions or sports or skills and it's like the way that alexander described it would be getting into that um that like baseline, like authentic version of yourself, like that tuned version of yourself, where it's just, you have, you have baseline range of motion mm-hmm. and connection to all the major joints in your body, which modern culture has largely kind of um, uh, divorced us uh-huh. from having those full function range of motion. So it makes it challenging for the body to be able to go into that self-organized, like fluid, wow, it just feels effortless. Uh-huh. So then it's like the next part of the conversation that could be interesting. Like, okay, well, what can we do to start to find that baseline tuning of the body? So you can start to put yourself into any scenario and pick up a new skill and almost like effortlessly be able to pick it up because your body has the intelligence to go through all those ranges of emotions. Yeah. There's a lot of words. I hope that. No, this is awesome. It made me think of something too, because when I think of just sitting in a chair, I mean, the chairs we're sitting in here right now, like I can sit relatively comfortably in this chair for hours on end and Mm -hmm. probably hardly even adjust my position. And eventually I'll probably get a little like awkward and move a little bit. But if I'm like sitting on the ground, like cross-legged or squatting on the ground or sitting on my knees or my shins or any of these other positions, it seems like there's a much shorter time frame in which I'm going to feel that urge of like, this is the spot I want to be in before I adjust, even if it's a small adjustment, I might just kind of like, you know, move myself a little bit to one side or move from sitting on my knees to squatting and just kind of rotate around a lot more frequently. So how much of that is just that relative, like quicker discomfort popping up, resulting in you putting yourself through a few more positional spots on a regular basis than say like sitting in a car seat 
lying on a bed or any of these real comfortable positions we found ourselves to be able to maintain for essentially eight hours a day. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing. Like that's, that's the magic is the, the, the body being kind of a little bit, it's like, it's like those stressors that make you stronger and make your life feel more gratifying and make you, you know, feel more successful and make you, it's like, wow, you start noticing change and results. It's because you've exposed yourself to these hermetic stressors or, or like you stress, you could say, mm -hmm. or it's like a stressor that's it's developmental for the body because you're able to digest it and process it and grow stronger from it and keep on building that. So those positions that you're going through as you're you know, subtly changing the way that those add up one, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a massage for all of the joints and all of the connective tissue, you're circulating lymphatic fluid, you know, so in order to circulate lymphatic fluid, you need muscular contraction mm -hmm. when you're sitting in place, just completely still, we you know we're standing in place completely still, you're gonna be starting to f uh, fill your lower compartments up with this fluid. Mm. So when you go through that, oh, every five, 10, one, 15, whatever minutes, you kind of do a little adjustment, do a little adjustment. It's, it's, you're circulating all the vital fluids in your body to make to, to, to heal those, those tissues. Mm -hmm. And then another thing that's, that's valuable with that is, is a, a fancy term for this is, is neat. You probably heard of oh, yeah. non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Yeah. So a, a person of that through this type of a method, I would of course. <laughs> yeah. So a person will burn up, can burn upwards of, of something like 2000 extra calories each day. Oh, wow. If they're doing, you know, they're more of a, like a neat yeah. kind of lifestyle. Mm -hmm. So a person that's dealing with maybe just feeling overweight, maybe that's why they're running, mm -hmm. you know, it's like, man, I just want to get this weight off of my body. You know, and so I do these, these grueling runs and, you know, I, it hurts for a while and then I start to feel good and I get in a runner's high or whatever, but then maybe I have these sore joints and such afterwards. And I have to like, yeah. you know, go through this whole remedy process, running that out because I want to burn calories. It's mm -hmm. like, we have so many calories just sitting on the table, ripe for the picking. Yeah. If we just start to naturally infuse a little bit of this neat stuff into our daily lives. Mm -hmm. And one of the, like the, the, the most basic, easy, simple, low hanging fruit ways to do that is, is like you're describing, putting yourself in that, that situation with some regularity, maybe like you check your emails and you get a floor cushion, yeah. a comfy rug, and you know you set your computer up on like a like a um, coffee table, mm -hmm. you know, or maybe you eat breakfast at a coffee table or you eat dinner at a coffee table. Yeah, you know, any of that that really starts to to add up in a massive way. So it's it's circulation. So you're getting all that lymph and all. If you have maybe you have inflammation in your lower compartments, or you know, so you have been running. Um, a great thing to do would be you know lay on your back and get your legs up above the height of your your heart. Mm -hmm. Anytime you ever rolled an ankle or anything of the sort, that's the first thing that any physical therapist or just anybody that has any sense yeah. of, of helping your, your healing along there's say, get your legs up above the height of your heart. Uh -huh. It's like, Oh, why is that? It's like, Oh, because gravity, you know, yeah. allows all of that, all of the inflammation and all of the, all of the, 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 the stuff that's developed from the process of healing that joint. It's going to be trickling back to the heart reprocess and then you get new vital fresh fluid into those joints and into that connective tissue that's a that's a a that's connective tissue it's going to heal effectively quickly mm -hmm. you know and that's like you know the the guy dr merkin who came up with the the rice rest ice compression elevation in the 70s uh-huh are you familiar with, with yeah. him and that like the, the shift where he's like, Oh, I'm really sorry, everybody. That wasn't accurate. I know a little bit about the shift, but I know much more about the actual process. Yeah. So this, the shift that he, 
kind of came to terms with um i think it was in the last probably like 10 years or something i don't remember the exact like date that he made the statement uh-huh. where he was like sorry bro yeah. <laughs> like, that wasn't fully <laughs> so the 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 ice portion of that that's the sorry bro part yeah where if you're just adding this sedentariness to the the, the healing joint complex or tissue whatever it may be um and you're making it cold you know and you're it's like it's like adding stagnancy yeah what the body needs to heal is circulation you know so the way that you circulate the body what he would recommend slash slash most folks would would recommend instead of icing it so resting it you know great uh to some degree you don't rest too much um compression fantastic Mm -hmm. because it moves those fluids elevation fantastic because it moves those fluids ice not not perfect great for an an analgesic effect it like numbs the tissue Mm -hmm. so if you need to get back in the game you're lebron james you hurt your shoulder something like that we're like okay let's like this hurts a lot we need you for three more minutes Uh okay maybe we can just like try to get that pain out of there for temporarily but as far as actually creating healing in that joint it would be movement Mm -hmm. you know so the movement would create all those you know, those passive contractions or maybe active contractions to get all that fluid out and get new fluid in. Yeah. Hey folks, just a quick reminder that this episode's sponsors are Optimal Carnivore and their organ meat supplement and Gooder sunglasses. You can check out details, discounts, and information about these show sponsors by going to the show notes or zachbitter.com forward slash HPO sponsors. Interesting. I know like one thing I was told by a physical therapist once where, uh, when it came to injuries was movement on a pain scale of three out of 10 or lower is going to increase the, the healing of the area. And like, that's good. So you need to find that movement that you can do within that kind of pain talent. You go above and beyond that, then you may be like actually like re-injuring or like hitting that area a little too hard that you injured. And it could potentially like well, if it's already injured, I guess you wouldn't be re-injuring, but just like kind of like keep it from being getting into that recovery process. You're also you're also um, ingraining that pain pathway mm-hmm. into your um, experience of that movement. Oh, really? Okay. So it's become like almost like a what would it be like a placebo of pain almost. <laughs> in in a way, you're like hard. You're like hardwiring that when I go through that range of motion, I it's it's ow. And so I do that on repeat, on repeat, on repeat, on repeat, on repeat. It becomes almost a remembered pain. Yeah. And so that's the solution for that is Mm -hmm. to do everything you can without pain. Mm -hmm. Anytime you're moving without pain, you're probably doing yourself a favor. Mm -hmm. Anytime you're moving with pain, you know, zero to three different people would, you know, probably have different opinions about that. Yeah. 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 It's just like avoid the pain. Uh Uh-huh everything that you can do without pain amazing when you're bumping into pain figure out a way to go around it uh-huh okay yeah yeah, yeah that's interesting i know like i remember the first injury that i ever got that was of any significance was in college it was like kill tendonitis and i got so far into it where some one of my my teammates is like well maybe it's fine. And you just have like a phantom pain there because you were dealing with it for so long. And I remember that's the first time I was ever kind of exposed to that type of thought process where it's like, Oh yeah, I guess if I'm like hyper-focused on that area, I might be thinking of things as pain that really aren't, it's just part of the process to some degree. Yeah. 
or just, you know, in my mind, just got so used to that area hurting when I did that particular thing. It's just the first thing that comes to mind when, when you have, do it. Have you had runs? I would think this would have to be the case, but have you had uh, runs where you have experienced some ex- excruciating might be a, a bit much, but like very apparent pain in a, a knee or a hip or an ankle or a back or something. And then suddenly it just like mysteriously disappeared. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. How regularly has that happened? Not too often. Usually, and I maybe I'm thinking of it the wrong way, but usually if it's something soft tissue and it's not anything major, it'll be something where it kind of bothers me as I'm kind of getting into the run, but then it kind of fades off as you get further into it. Mm. Uh, if that's what you're asking about. Yeah. Yeah. Something that. like that. Yeah. Pain's such a strange yeah. creature. Uh-huh. <laughs> like we'd love to be able to bottle up you know, the, the, the definition of it, like, this is what pain is. Yeah. Pain's pretty apparent and, 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 and pretty definable in like short term, you know, I've, there's a lighter right on my arm. Yeah. And like, oh, cool. Like we pretty much break that down uh-huh. when it comes into the conversation of, of chronic pain and fibromyalgia and, yeah. you know, all these other different or, or, or phantom limb, limb syndrome. Yeah where you don't even have an arm to have pain, bro. <laughs> so <how does> that <laughs> and your finger hurts. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's, Could it's you a... imagine being the first person to like express that? They must, that everyone must have been like, you're just absolutely crazy. There's no, there's something's wrong with you. Yeah, we're all crazy. Right? right. Yeah. Some of the most effective people on the planet are like the, the craziest mm-hmm. in a way. Yeah. Well, it's like the first people to bring something up. Well, it's, it's the, it's the, you're familiar with Tim Noakes. Yeah. We talked uh about him, I think. Yeah. Uh He's, he's great. Yeah. He's an example, like Rob Wolf. Uh We were before this, we're talking about how Rob Wolf is just like a sweet kind. He's like a big deal. Yeah. But when you meet him, he's just like the kind of sweetest, very unassuming, most lovely person to like anybody. Um, Noakes strikes me that way. Yeah. I only met him on the internet. We never met in person, but mm-hmm. just my experience with him, he struck me as someone that's just very like, just authentic. Yeah. Kind, you know, uh-huh. sweet type fella. But anyway, so his, his, um, the central, central governor theory where, and you might be able to describe this better than I, I can actually. Um, but essentially it's like you have a, an internal tracking of your location in a race that dictates your, um, your felt experience and even like your physiological expression of where you're at in that race. So if mm-hmm. you suddenly, you know, if you're halfway through the race, you feel a certain way, you might feel like you're like on the edge of just complete collapse. Uh-huh. And then suddenly it's like one more lap to go. You're like, Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> like Here we go. Yeah, you're like, where did that come from? They, they call that the junior high kick when you're in when you're in cross country as a youngster because it's always like, oh, they're looking death at mile two, but then all of a sudden, 200 meters to go, they're all out sprinting. Dude, again. Their body <laughs> is crazy. Yeah. Uh huh. So if you get a person that's a little nutty, yeah, and they don't, ha- they're not running the same story as everybody else. Uh-huh. Their mind's different. Uh huh. And so they don't have the the governor like everybody else does yeah and so that comes into the i don't i don't remember the term for it but um what is it called Uh, the body's ability to access immense amount of strength and recruit like all the motor units and Uh be able to come online in a a really impressive way when you're under threat or under danger Uh so you release you know 
all the norepinephrines and all the adrenalines and just, yeah. and there's a, you know, a, some large, there's a, a, a VW bus that fell on your yeah. uncle. Yeah. And, and you're like, fling it off. Yeah. you pick it up. Yeah. That's in you. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, like the body is, is wild. It is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you think about it, it's like the the body starts trying to shut things down quite early. It seems like it does in, in terms of like what it wants you to do or what it wants you to put itself through. Breath and, holds are a great example. Yeah, that. yeah, yeah. That's a really good one. Yeah, yeah. That's one I haven't really explored personally to see it for myself, but I've listened to a lot of people describe like how you go through just like kind of getting better at that, and I find that really interesting. Where. I mean, I'm, I would guess like if you threw me underwater and my life depended on it, I would probably hold my breath a lot longer than I would if you just asked me to see how long I can hold my breath. And it just makes kind of intuitive sense yep. uh, with other things like that too, where, you know, you get, you're in a race and you think like, oh, this is over. And then all of a sudden you get a new piece of information that changes your mindset. And all of a sudden it's like, woof, back yeah. to it. And you also can come to a place of almost euphoria mm-hmm. when you get to that. So panic waking out breakdown oh my god euphoria this is okay do i really need to breathe Uh start talking to turtles (laughs) because the body wants to support you right the body the body is your friend unless somehow you've renegotiated that relationship (laughs) and now suddenly it's it thinks the appropriate thing is to attack you Mm -hmm. you know and that might be this is like out of my depth like a lot of things we've just been discussing but getting into like autoimmune disease and such it's like why is the body attacking itself yeah you know i don't know enough about it to have a meaningful yeah about it but But it makes sense that it would be something similar to that because it's i mean i've had so many examples in my life with running both myself and people i've watched or worked with with that particular thing and and the first experience was always it almost got to a point where you expect it to a degree and i didn't have nearly the intelligence to actually know what was going on other than that it was happening but you'd always have this race sometime in the season and this is when i was running like 5ks and stuff in high school and it would be this point where you'd run a race and you'd run like say 20 seconds faster than you've ever run before and then like you have a few more meets and every one of those meets now all of a sudden you're running that pace or maybe just right around it whereas before that was such a leap ahead but you just like recreated the norm so like you have someone who's running like 17 and a half minutes for a 5k like meet after meet after meet and all of a sudden they have a great day and they bust out like a 1655 yeah and after that every meet they run and they're running right around that 655 17 until they hit that next spot where they kind of punch through and, and some of it's just you know physiological adaptations that happen through the course of training and racing but some of it's also just like what we've been talking about is this mental space of like five in my head that like 1730 is this like big block that i'm not going to get through you know, when I get around that spot where it's time to make the move to stay on pace to run faster than that, I'm probably going to release that and let it come in. But if you break through it, then you get the euphoria, the whole yeah. the, the experience to know you can do it. And then that's the new norm. Who broke the four minute mile? Roger Bannister. Yeah. That's, uh, do you, have you hacked in quotations, any like Bannister effects in your own life? Is there anything that you've like, cause it's an interesting thing when someone yeah. does a thing mm-hmm. and you're like, Oh, okay. And then you just, do the thing sure it's like okay like what is the my story and you know like the the boundaries where's your banister my imposed boundaries Mm -hmm. so there's the idea of who i think i am who i think i'm supposed to be how i think i run what my think my like best is yeah and then just based off of history and science and you know like all the anecdotal evidence it's like 
oh, like those definitely are perceived boundaries. Yeah. Those aren't the boundaries. Right. I would say the biggest one for me is less about like the end target. Like Bannister was like, I got to break four minutes. That was the thing. Mine was more like, what is the proper way to maybe execute to get to that point? So my mindset, and I think this is pretty common in ultra running is, I mean, you're out there for so long. So the mind kind of goes towards, well, I feel way better in the first few hours. So I'm going to bank a little bit of time. It's, it feels better to run this pace. I'm going to bank a little time, a few miles, however you want to look at it. And then at the end, it's going to suck no matter what, because I've been doing this activity for however long. And it's just gonna be so much harder to motivate myself to move that pace then. So you just kind of assume you're gonna run slower in the second half than the first half. Yeah. Uh, I did when I ran my fastest hundred miler, actually I ran the second 50 miles, two minutes faster than the first 50 miles. And it sort of happened on accident. So like it, but what it did is it kind of shifted my paradigm in my head as to like, Oh, I can feel better from 80 to hundred than I did from 30 to 40. It doesn't have to be this like linear digression. It mm. can be a series of like, there's going to be some like self-doubt and some hurdles to get over along the way. And that's part of the reason you do these things in the first place. But ultimately, if you kind of like trust the process, trust your training and put yourself in a position and pace it right, you can be in a position where you're speeding up at the end versus slowing down. Yep. So like, I would say like, for me, the banister moment was just realizing like the last fifth of a hundred mile race doesn't have to be the most miserable experience on planet earth. It can be the one of the most like euphoric experiences because you're like actually doing better in that, that uh, fraction of the event than you were in other, any other area of it. I think I have a potential key pillar to success in any aspect of life. And maybe not any, most aspects of life. And I'd be curious your perception on, on, on how to go deeper into that. Um, <laughs> processing or um, maybe alchemizing to use kind of like a pretentious new agey word. Um, the suck, mm -hmm. like, oh, this hurts. Oh, I don't like this into something that you're like, oh yeah, like give me the suck. Yeah. Like that's, you know, like, uh, like Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning, you know, are you yep. familiar with him mm -hmm. and his, you know, any of that stuff? So he's, he went through uh, the Holocaust and got like, you know, bumped from, from one place to another. And he wrote his whole logo therapy on like, uh, well, his, his manuscript was, was burnt, I believe by the Nazis. And I think he like rewrote it on like toilet paper or something ridiculous. And it was, his whole thing was like getting into your why and uh -huh. being like noticing the difference between the people he could see the people that were going to die versus the people that were going to survive based off of their, their attitude. Uh-huh. You know? Oh, and, yeah. And so I wonder if you, cause this is something that you are regularly placing yourself into those positions of like, Oh, this sucks. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like objectively, like this is, this is, this hurts. I'm tired. I'm, you know, dehydrated. all the things. Yeah. Is there any solution or bullet points for how a person could start to take the lessons that you've gathered translating that suck into something that you can like be with yeah. into into daily life or is that too a complex way of asking a simple question no i think it makes sense and i think like if i want to generalize it a little bit i would say that like really i think the the way to really kind of leverage that is you almost have to experience how much worse it is to sort of like feel like you left something on the table because you got into a negative mindset so for me personally mm -hmm. like i had a race 
prior to that one years before where I was like on pace to run a similar race, but at mile 80, the wheels kind of came off. I'm sure it was a balance of physical and mental at the time. I was probably like, oh, it was all, it was all physical. There's no way I was mentally weak, but like now in hindsight, you look back you're like, yeah, you know, who knows? Maybe I was just not in the right headspace to keep running as fast as I did that, that next time. And I think like, if you have that perspective, then you start to kind of like almost rationalize where like, okay, this sucks now, but this is a more temporary pain that in the grand scheme of things, let's say this next two and a half hours is physically a little miserable. I can bear that two and a half hours of physical misery for months, if not years of just like mental elation about how I pushed through that. Yeah. And I think when you kind of, when I think of this, I think of a, you, you know, if you follow jo- Jocko Willink at all. Yeah. Okay. So he had this speech probably a couple of years ago where he just like basically rattled off like all sorts of like incredibly like terrible experiences that, that he would have faced when he was in like special forces and stuff like that. And rather than saying like, Oh, this thing came up, it's the end of the world. I'm failing my, you know, my, my buddies here and the country or whatever. He was like, Oh good. Here's a problem. Now I'm going to push through that. That's one more thing I can say I conquered. So you just basically reversed it. There's a reverse frame. It was like, okay, here's something that would normally spin my mind into a negative that would create another negative and another negative and just compound itself into, Oh, here's another little like kind of accolade. I get a check off the list along the way. Cause I'm going to conquer that one. And once I figure out and solve this problem, I'll, I'll, I'll be able to solve the next one. I'll be better for it. So it's almost like rather than going in, expecting everything to be perfect and work according to plan, you got to go in with a plan, but with the mindset that it's probably not going to play out that way in real life. So you have to be ready to adjust and yeah. recognize it when it happens. Yeah. Life, it seems like life is pretty much based around the stories that we tell ourselves, maybe like mm-hmm. the quality of the stories that we tell ourselves. Yeah. Getting into like a person that like Jordan Peterson talks about this, of like you're, you may be running the story that your life is a tragedy, mm-hmm. but you just as well, there is the opportunity and avail- availability to spin it as a comedy, to spin it as a love story, to spin it as a, as a, a hero's journey, mm-hmm. you know, but at some point you kind of learned to perceive things as, Oh, it's this, you know, it's, yeah. I'm, a, I'm a victim. This mm-hmm. is a tragedy. And we kind of will start to almost like, um, so we like run on those stories in a way it's almost like fuel mm-hmm. you know or it's, it, it's like something that we we and, and we start to be resistant to another type of story because we've grown accustomed to this type of story and i think it winds back to like our relationship yeah. to our parents and you know a lot so of our education and, and who we think we are and our relationship to relationships happens around like age zero to four and probably even while you're you know like pre-birth mm-hmm. i would presume you know, yeah. because you're, you're, you're picking up a lot of information from your parents and your mom and yep. stress hormones and all those things. Like you essentially are your mom <laughs> yeah. at that point. So uh-huh. what she's experiencing, you're experiencing. Yeah. It's very I interesting. Mean, this is, I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole. Cause I know you, you're going to do a trail run and I'm, yeah. I told, I'm, I'm not going to make you late for a trail run. So, but this is, this is my biggest gripe with the education system is <laughs> like, I think the way I look at this is like, we send children to school from age five until 18, basically mandatorily. And then they can decide if they want to go on and continue. And with that, that time of 12, 13 years, I'm willing to bet that at by age, like 30 to 35, I could have learned everything I did from age five to 18 from an academic standpoint in about a year. Isn't that crazy? In about a year. 
So when, when we have that scenario, like why do we have the education system from five to 18 structured in a way where failing is so, I, th I think it's gotten better, but like it's structurally set up in a way where like failing is to be avoided because failing means you're one step further away from A. So like, I mean, if you want to be a valedictorian, you can't make a mistake for four years, basically. Mm. You know, so like if, you, if that's your standard, if that's standard set in front of you, it's not an option of like, well, I'm going to fail a bunch of times and then ultimately succeed. It's if I fail a bunch of times and ultimately succeed, I'm going to be way behind everyone else that managed to not fail as often. And I think that's the exact opposite framework we want to send people into life thinking of. I think we would want to send people into life thinking like, if I fail, I need to step back and, and look at why that happened, not that it happened and learn from that process. And then if you ultimately get to the right answer, that's the A, like yeah. whether you got there right away, or if it took you 10 tries should be kind of besides the point. Yeah. Yeah. And a model like that incentivizes taking risks and ultimately incentivizes evolution. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So yes. that's, it's kind of an interesting view, view, uh, we're terrified for the most part to be like too different, you know? Mm -hmm. So you want to be a part of the tribe where we're going to kind of like, you know, dress similarly, we're gonna have similar accents, yeah. we're going to drive similar cars, there's a certain like status virtue signaling with each click or yeah. tribe that you identify with. And then the irony with all of that is the people that we actually respect the most, the people that we end up kind of worshiping are the people that are wildly different. Mm -hmm. So there's this inherent pressure to be the same, but if you're too much the same, then you're not really providing any value to the community. Uh -huh. So there's a resistance and a fear to be different, but if you successfully do different, the whole world is like, oh, like well, amazing. Yeah. But then there's an inherent pressure not, to not be too different, uh -huh. you know? And so it, I think coming from an education system where you're not like, like you're saying, it's, I mean, I'm just thinking about this like now for the first time, but, but to come from a system where it's, you know, you're, you're afraid to fail. Um, I think that's a pretty major handicap for uh, like innovation. Oh yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Cause I mean, once you, and just like a good life, like a, like a fun, interesting, adventurous life. Uh -huh. Yeah. 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 And I think it ends up feeding into uh, some of the more like standard work environments then too, where like the expectation for your boss was the same as yours was when they were in elementary school, middle school, and high school. So mm -hmm. then they kind of have this vision of the path forward is mistake-free, error-free, you know, this is what the, you know, the, the path forward is. So then like you get someone who's like micromanaging you and it's like the worst situation because you're trying to get to the answer and you know, you also like looking over your shoulder while you're searching for the answer to see if the supervisor is going to see that mistake you made and quickly corrected, but still stayed on course, which would be besides the point if you got to the answer eventually, but because they're there looking over your shoulder, it's, you know, it's like this weird environment we create. And by being too safe, it sets you up for disaster mm -hmm. by playing it safe. Like, like an example, this is, there's a physical analogy with this physical analogy would be if all you ever do is place yourself into some nerf reality where there's just no threat of danger. There's no need to activate any of your proprioceptive awareness because you're just, you're locked up, you're in your car, you're kind of in your little, little 
you know, you got your, your seatbelt on, you know, you take away your necessity to even drive the car. So now you got GPS just on the whole thing. You just kind of get in and place your body in there. And then maybe you, you sink yourself <laughs> into your cell phone and you're just kind of Screw observing. That. I'm putting on Bluetooth. It's going to tell me what to do. I'm not even right. looking down. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You just, kind of, uh, you just kind of ship the body to another location. Uh-huh. Yeah, you can say like, oh, it's you know, it's better to safer. Like we can't trust drivers, <laughs> you know. It's like then you wind that back. It's like, what if I biked? Yeah, and says so like, well, you might get hit by a car. <laughs> you know, you don't want to bike. That's very dangerous. You know, it's like it's like, well, okay, so that short term potential threat of danger where I might get hit by a car, which causes me to have to activate all of my senses and mm-hmm. you know, all of my neuroceptions and my proprioceptions and all, you know, all the ceptions are coming on. It's like, a, like an electrical storm through my body of enlivenment, essentially yeah. of awareness, you know, so that there's that where I, I turn myself on so that I become actually more adaptive and available to, to be able to treat whatever stressor or threats in the future um, I, I'm resourced to be able to do that because I've, you know, I've, I've trained myself mm-hmm. compared to the person that is in the hyper safe cushion nerf reality yeah. where their body and their mind and everything just starts to kind of wither and atrophy. And then when some actual real world threat manifests itself, you don't have any of the tools right. to be able to, to, to properly show up for it. Mm-hmm. And then there's the injury. So there's just the moving around. There's this the reshuffling of danger. Yeah, danger is a part of the deal. You're not getting away. You're not getting away from it. (laughs) So, ironically or paradoxically, a person that is in a a safe and this kind of comes into like like child rearing, like having a a kid's like, how much danger do we want little Bobby to be exposed to? Right, because he needs a little danger, Uh or else he's just going to be dumb. Yeah, you know, if he's too much danger. I might die. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like, where's we don't want to kill little Bobby, you know, but we want him to kind of have his threshold yeah. of danger, like regularity of, of, of perceived, you know, or, or danger in quotations mm-hmm. for him to be able to grow. Yeah. And if he is not exposed to regular bouts of, of danger or stress or threat or resistance, um, then he'll essentially almost like, uh, I, don't know, I was going to say like suffocate on the safety is kind of like yeah. an overly poetic way of saying it, but it's an interesting idea of like how much, uh, well, just, just that idea in general of, of the, the shuffling around of danger and threat, there's no getting rid of it. Yeah. And so if you can come into a person that changes their story of it, of like, no, like I actually welcome it, uh-huh. you know, that's, that's a really interesting mindset. Yeah. to be in where you're not crazy you're not like oh like i'm you know you're not just doing stupid things mm-hmm. but you don't go into a, a panic attack when things get a little sideways yeah yeah i mean the bike example is perfect because i think like when i was young i rode bikes all the time like i, I had a paper out when i was 10 years old so i was biking in the morning first thing just to deliver those papers and i'd bike to school my friends and i would bike after school biking everywhere so like you get so used to being on that thing like you, you get good at the perception and avoiding mm-hmm. the danger. You become, you become the bike. Yeah. You become the bike and it gets safer and safer. The more you do it, cause you get better at it and better at it. And you're just more aware. You're, you pick up on the things that could potentially be a problem. So you become faster. your environment. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. And then, you know, as I got older and started biking less, I found myself at a point at one time where I hadn't biked much at all for a few years. And then I got back on a bike. I'm like, gosh I'm, I'm a scaredy cat compared to like when i was a kid i would just went just like, you know just zoomed all over the place and yeah. had no issue with it and it's like why am i so afraid to do this stuff and then as i started biking more i started kind of getting that 
that cutting that groove again, where I, now I felt comfortable. Now I know how to navigate. I know where all the problems might be. And it's like anything you practice it more and yeah. it becomes, you come better at it. So, so it, it probably is getting close to yeah. the, the jog time, yeah. but I, I'd be, I'd, I'd be curious, um, which I, I, I don't even want to stop because I'm enjoying this conversation, but <laughs> um, the, so I'm about to go on a trail run uh-huh. with a friend. Uh, I wonder your suggestions for, one hour what's your suggestions for like mid-afternoon what would be the ideal organization of my day to this point of whatever time it is two o'clock three o'clock i don't mm-hmm. even know what time it is what time is it three three oh five okay so i'm going around three oh five uh-huh morning to three oh five what would be your like ideal day to get me at an optimal point to run my best at three o'clock yeah that's a good question i think uh um physiologically uh for, for a single run, being hydrated is going to be an important part. Mm. You've already been doing that. You were drinking some water and some element before yeah. this, so you're probably good to go. Yeah. Uh, in terms of just like the other physiological stuff, like depending on the type of workout, if it's just kind of an easy run, it's not as big a deal time of day. There's some evidence that would show that if you're going to do something a little more high intensity or faster running, like sprint intervals or something like that, then afternoons would be a little better because you're going to be more kind of alert and turned on at that point. Mm. Uh, I usually look at it through two angles too, in terms of like, are you running by yourself or with a person? So you're running with a person. So a lot of times I just try to think of, well, I don't necessarily think about it, but I just go in assuming like there's more than one thing that's happening here. This is going to be an experience where I'm going to have a conversation that's probably going to be meaningful in some shape or form along the time frame of this hour. And that kind of adds a bit of value to that. Um, I think, uh, from, for, uh, just mental preparation. I think it's just like looking at it as something you get to do or just something you have to do. Mm. You don't strike me as the type of person who's going to be looking at it through a negative lens that yeah, much. I'm a big but, get to do guy. Uh huh. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, it, but <laughs> or try to be, I try to be. Because anything rewarding does have parts that are kind of a little bit like, do I really want to be doing that? You know, like that sort of thing. Like you are like moving yourself in a way where there'll be a point during that hour where you're maybe like, Ah, 45 minutes might've been better, but that point will pass. So like, you just want to make sure you're not thinking about that stuff. So usually if I'm in a situation where like, I'm going to go do a run like that, uh, I just try to be mindful of like anything that would potentially kind of come in that would make it frame it as a negative. I try to like, that's great. Already be armed with reasons to like dismiss that. Yeah. So if it's like, uh, you know, I feel like I'm probably in better shape to run 45 minutes right now than 60 minutes. Maybe I should ask, but I just like, no, I'm going to learn something about myself that last 15 minutes, even if it's kind of miserable for the 15 minutes itself wow. and always try to spin it to the positive. I love that. I was absolutely anticipating. And I think like seeking some type of like the perfect stack of nutrients, and supplements <laughs> and water or food or fasting or whatever. 30 grams of whey protein. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Human stem cells. Yeah. Well, that um, might not hurt. But. Yeah. Probably quite fine. Yeah. Um, that's cool. That's interesting. So that comes back to kind of like the whole basis of most of the conversation and kind of like the, the Tim Noakes central governor mm-hmm. stuff and the stories we tell ourselves and how that's very interesting. Yeah. I appreciate that. I always find afternoon workouts though. They're, they're much harder to push myself out the door for, mm. but they're always the most rewarding when I finish. Mm. Cause I always feel like if I do an afternoon workout, it almost feels like it's almost like bonus because I've already gotten some things done during the day. Yeah. So it's not like starting, although there's a lot of value with running to start the day, I think too. But like when you do them in the afternoon, you have this sense of, 
oh, I've got a lot of these other things checked off my list of things I wanted to do today. And now this is kind of a value add to it. I get yeah. to go and do this now too, to add to the, everything else I already accomplished. Cool. Thanks, man. Awesome. I want to, there's a, a thing we, um, so we were talking about previously the getting up and down off of the ground and the value of that. Yeah. As far as like specific things that people can do to cultivate the range of motion and all the necessary joints in order to make that happen for the rest of their lives. That's the number one leading reason for elderly needing assisted living is fall risk. Uh-huh. I fall and I can't get up. Yeah. The reason that that is a, I mean, it's, I don't know what the numbers are exactly, but it's, it's certainly like a billion dollar yeah. industry or, or liability for, for culture um, slash just human sovereignty, you mm-hmm. know, a sensation of that, that self, that, that autonomy of like, I can take care of myself. Yeah. I'm 90 and I can take care of myself. Mm-hmm. You know, like yeah. that's, that's a big deal. That's, you know, it's unquantifiable. Yeah. Uh, like that feeling, uh-huh. you know, and so that is something that is in, uh, from at least from a cultural perspective, you know, looking at the rest of the world, that's, that's doing, going through this range of emotion each day that can be taken off of the table. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like yeah. that's something that, that we are just not electing to engage with. Right. It's kind of the danger conversation, you know, you're so punting the danger down to age, you're 90. punting the danger down to age 70 or whatever your time frame. you're kind of like, Oh, which is the last time you want to be dealing with the danger. The last time you want to be old. dealing with that. <laughs> and now you have this block of 30 years of life where you're like, Oh, exclusively because you've divorced yourself of those range of motions in your daily life. And, and be, Probably because, you know, there's maybe not exclusive. There's a lot of, a lot of factors to it. Um, also part of those factors is your story of what it means to age. Mm-hmm. And I just did a podcast on my, my podcast, line podcast with, um, I don't remember her name. It's a, she's a, she graduated from Harvard. She's a Stanford professor. She has a book coming up um, all about the way that the stories that we tell ourselves and our perception of aging actually affects the physiological sequence of our aging. Like the way that we, uh-huh. that we age from like a material, like what the cells and the yeah. joints do. And, um, you know, in that it's, you know, the whole, the whole book, which I'm completely spacing the book name and the author. And I I apologize, but the general sentiment of it is, um, people that one specific research study that she had done, I think in Stanford when it was people at age 30 that found or had the story that as I age, I just keep getting better, Mm -hmm. you know, like, Oh, like age, like no problem, like more opportunities to cultivate my you know, my investments and my health and my, my range of motion, my joints and the quality of the way that I move my relationships, like, ah, you know, compared to the people that have the story that as I age, things just get worse. It's just dilapidation, (laughs) entropy. Uh, The people that had those stories um, of of aging is a good thing. They ended up having like, it was, I don't remember the specific statistics, but it was significantly less incidence of cardiovascular disease. Like everything that's bad in aging Uh significantly less yeah just by you know when they were in their younger 30 you know 40 years it was like oh yeah like it's it's not a problem i don't have you know i think this is going to be good yeah 
you know, so the stories we tell ourselves are also a really, a really big thing so with that. The moral of the story is go find yourself some pictures of really fit 70 to 80 year olds. Yeah. Hang out. <laughs> yeah. You become the product of five people you spend those yeah. time with. Uh, but so, yeah, so we have a, uh, is it, is it okay if I share a, a resource? Oh yeah, absolutely. For folks with this. So uh, we created a resource specifically educating people on one. It's a, it's a, the sit rise test, uh-huh. which was, there was a study that was published in the, the, the European journal of, preventative cardiology where they created this thing called the sit rise test that suggested that uh, each point of contact that you need to make when you get up and down and off of the ground is indicative for your, um, your, your longevity of your life. Uh-huh. So less points of contact means based off of the study, you'll probably live longer. Okay. More points of contact means you'll probably live less. Uh-huh. People that have the most points of contact were six times more likely to die during the 6.1 year span of the study than people that, you know, only needed one or two, or it's pretty much eight to 10 was the, sorry, you start off with a, a perfect score of 10. And then every point of contact that you make, you reduce one point. Okay. Every wobble that you have, you reduce half a point. And then you come up and you have your final score at the end. And, you know, that's indicative of essentially like your overall health. Interesting. So we created uh, that and then gave, gave, uh, this is all free, um, broke down exactly how to regain function and mobility of your toe hinge and your ankle and your knees and your hips to be able to effectively go through the range of motion. So if people are interested in going into that, um, the URL for it is alignpodcast.com slash srt sit rise test linepodcast.com slash srt and then they can start that that journey of starting to like make sure that you never in your life lose the capacity to get up and down off of the ground yeah if you lose that it's a major problem okay and it's it's yours to keep as long as you're engaging it with it with regularity and the way that you engage with it with regularity is by making it a part of who you are. Mm-hmm. The way you do that is you start to, you know, make your environment a little bit more Japanese, Moroccan, you know, yeah. Northern African, Eastern Mediterranean, Southeast Asian, just integrate a little bit of that in there. I'm throwing away all my chairs. <laughs> <laughs> chairs are fine. Just make sure you're doing the, the tuning mechanisms. Yes. Yeah, yep. Yeah. No, you know? I, I get you. No, that's great. So uh, I want to make sure the listeners know where they can find you. I know you have the Align podcast, the website that goes with it, your Align Method book, resistance bands, right? Yeah. What yeah. else you got for us? That's it. Yeah. It goes. So you could, I mean, I, I think just get up and down off the ground with regularity. Mm-hmm. That's great. It's very important. Get yourself a comfy rug in your house. Yeah. Get some floor cushions, put that, put it, make an area near windows, get outside more. Mm-hmm. You just need to be outside more. Yeah. You know, cultures that don't get outside enough. Um, there's, there's the suggestion. It's not uh, like absolute evidence. That this is the case, but sunlight being correlated with myopia so literally changing the shape of your of your your eyeballs because yeah. you're not getting those photons hitting your eyeball. You need mm-hmm. photons on the eyeballs. Pull those sunglasses Full off spectrum so light. Take your freaking sunglasses <laughs> off. Take a walk in the morning. Get rid of the sunglasses. Wear your sunglasses at night. At night. Who wrote? Who, yeah. Oh yeah. Something Collins? Michaels. Something, I don't know. Whatever. Like I wear my sunglasses at night. Legit. <laughs> Like that's like, that's the move that's the during the day. Get all the blues. So far you want the time. blues. <laughs> he was way ahead of his time. Um, yeah. So if you want more information, a line podcast is, is that I've had, I've had Zach on the podcast and, you know, we've done 
been going for the last like seven it'll be seven years in april which is like now essentially uh align method book has more details about that and then alignpodcast.com slash uh s r t sit rise test that would be the beginning of making sure that you have access to up and down off of the ground well thanks a bunch for taking some time let's get you to the trails yes (laughs) time to go to the trails (laughs) all right thank you man i appreciate it awesome all right see you Thanks for tuning into this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with Zach Bitter. All right, folks, if you are interested in adding some structure to your training program, I have some options that might interest you. Over on my website, ZachBitter.com, I have a wide range of ready-made plans that have options for beginners to advanced endurance athletes. I also have personalized plan options where I will cater a plan specific to the event you are preparing for and your personal schedule and training availability. You can also access a variety of add-on options from email collaboration to consultation calls to help guide you through your training and nutrition needs. You can access these with or without a formal plan. So head over to ZachBitter.com and let me know what you think.